Hello and welcome to this episode of Rewild My Bio. I'm your host, Sean Slade, and my wild and wonderful guest on this episode is James Alofs. James is a Mandarin, Chinese, and English bilingual actor that has recently returned back to Canada from China. He has over 300,000 followers on Chinese social media, acted in six feature films and 11 television series in China. He has also co-hosted a nationally broadcasted talk show in China. He currently lives between Muskoka and Toronto, Ontario, and is producing and writing a historical drama that he will be pitching to networks this year in the U.S. Chinese social media. You know what? I never actually, uh, I never really even asked James what that is exactly. Um, but, you know, that wasn't what he was here to discuss. He was here t today on this episode to share his love for rewilding and conservation from Ontario all the way to China. Um, my guest here today, he is a uh, super well-researched uh, individual on a number of important environmental issues um, right here in Ontario. And he also, uh, on this episode, fills us in on his experience and knowledge on environmental issues in China and their whole rewilding scene. So, um, in fact, James' YouTube and Instagram videos um, you know, on a whole host of current topics in conservation have become very popular from China to Canada. And we discuss several current uh, environmental issues that he has been sharing on his Instagram, on his TikTok. And, um, and I've linked those all in the show notes for today. And that's at rewildmybio.com slash rewildontario. So please just head over to the website and share the entire show notes the website, the whole thing, just share that with your friends, family, whoever you see fit, especially if you live here in Ontario and want to protect our wildlands and protect and regenerate our soil, water, and air. So um, links of all sorts are there with tons of great organizations. So I have, uh, you know, nothing left to say really here for this intro. Um, as I've said recently in a solo cast that I'm uh, basically introducing the guest and that's it I'm keeping it quiet I'm gonna leave my random ramblings and my rewilding practices and sharing of my research on those solo casts um, but yeah for the most part I'm just going to do my best to be a better podcast host for all of you listening out there because I really appreciate your feedback and support and love for the show and all that positive feedback that's helping me become a better podcast host you know because it's not really, uh, it's a new gig to me. You know, I may uh, be a lover of nature and the outdoors and whatnot, but uh, yeah, when it comes to podcast hosting, that's a whole different ball of wax. So um, anyways, what else can I say? Check out James on Instagram, at James Alofs. Um, everything again in the show notes. Uh, and if you haven't, you know, as always, please comment, rate, and review this podcast on your platform of choice or, you know, better yet, just head to all the platforms. Just go to them all rate and review the podcast, five stars. And this helps people. If you enjoy the show, uh, please do this because this helps people find the show. And that means a lot to me in uh, you know this world because uh, I need you guys' help creating awareness um, for this show and for these issues that we talk about here. Um, and basically, I need your help because I don't have Twitter anymore. And so, uh, yep, Twitter's gone. Um, James was actually trying to uh, lure me over into TikTok. I don't know. I'm trying to keep it... Uh, keep it light on these social media feeds these days. But anyways, um, he's a great guy and honestly a kindred soul or brother from another mother. So it was 
a great uh, conversation um, for me anyways, and I hope you guys get a lot of benefit out of it as well. Um, in fact, I want to just commend, uh, you know, his work again on specifically calling out politicians and being a critic, um, you know, for their lack of nature connection or lack of uh, regard for our laws that protect nature and endangered species. Um, I share his sentiment that, uh, you know, wild food is a, is a gateway to nature connection and protecting nature. And, uh, yeah, we talk a lot about that here today. What else can I tell you really quick about what we chat about? Um, minister zoning orders. That was one thing I found interesting, um, which are there in times of crisis. Um, and right now our Ontario government, conservative government led by Doug Ford, are, they're using these to essentially bypass environmental assessments, um, you know, during COVID of all times. Uh, honestly, there's a lot of uh, touchy subjects here today, but we kept it sunny and we kept it positive and gave you guys plenty of resources. So again, head on over to the website. There's um, stuff from Environmental Defense uh, Canada. There's a petition there um, that you can sign to help stop the... Uh, the creation of Highway 413 that runs right through the Greenbelt and, uh, you know, is quite damaging to a lot of wildlife and natural space. So anyways, I've said enough here for this intro. Um, again, everything is over at the show notes. That's rewildmybio.com slash rewildontario. Please do let me know what you think and uh, enjoy the show. Welcome to Rewild My Bio, a self-help and alternative health podcast. I'm your host, Sean Slade. Join me as I share stories, science, and strategies to help you rewild your biology and redefine your biography. Let's kick it off then, just like that. James, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mr. Sean. Yeah. It's great to be here, man. It's awesome to have you. And uh, actually, how do I say your last name? How do I... Uh... Alofs. That's what I would have said, but I didn't want to just go right on the whim and mess it up right at the beginning of the podcast, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, James Alofs, welcome to the show. Uh, it's exciting to have you here because I've really been enjoying uh, a lot of your content online, a lot of your videos around uh, you know, conservation here in Ontario is great and then uh, it's been great to get to know you too over social media it's actually it's great when social media has like positive benefits right so been able to connect with you has been great and hearing about another person's journey into rewilding in Ontario it just means a lot to me and uh, yeah I really appreciate it so uh, awesome to have you here welcome absolutely man thank you Sean yeah and it was such a relief to find you as well my friend same sentiment you know, the whole rewilding movement, there's quite a lot of folks down in the U.S. that seem to be in, in this. There's a lot of, you know, sort of influencers and content makers down there. But when I came across your Rewild My Bio uh, social media presence, I was like, all right, another Ontarian. <laughs> right? I'm not here alone. This is great. So, <laughs> well, great content. Man. I, I appreciate it. it. Yeah, I really do appreciate it. Yeah, and definitely it's mutual. So I will definitely dive into some of that stuff today. But yeah, before we do that, I mean, and in this journey and getting to know each other, I've started to uncover more of your, uh, your day job, so to speak, and your uh, career as an actor and producer. So yeah, I mean, uh, tell me more about that because we haven't really touched on that too much. Um, but yeah, tell me more about what, uh, you know, what led you to overseas to China where that is your, where your acting career has kicked off. So yeah, tell folks more about uh, what exactly led you over there and then how you got into acting. And, and I guess in there, how you ended up on kind of like um, the, I guess the Chinese version of, like the bachelor that's kind of is that is that correct i don't know if i'm 
Yeah, no, you're right. That's man. basically Absolutely. it. Yeah, yeah, right on, right on. <laughs> a bit, bit of a weird situation. But uh, yeah, I guess, um, you know, uh, drama was never my major, but I always did a lot of drama stuff in high school and university. And um, I, my, my undergrad was in geography, uh, human geography, and then I did a master's uh, in business. And uh, I remember my first day, you know, after graduating from my MBA at my new job, I was working as a, uh, a brand manager at Procter & Gamble. And um, I just remember after the first day of initiations, I'm like, there's no way I can be this, you know, corporate, corporate slave thing for, for the rest of my life. So I kind of knew that I, you know, I had to go try being an actor. I stuck around with P&G for two years, though, first to kind of le learn the ropes. But at the time, I decided, you know, instead of going to Los Angeles to be an actor, why not go to China? Because actually, one of my minors in, in undergrad had been in Chinese, and I'd done a number of, uh, you know, summer internships over in China. So that's kind of what made me want to be an actor in China, you know, just because it's such a, it's a, such a huge market. Uh, like this year, uh, or sorry, in 2020, like the um, box office in China was finally bigger than the box office in North America in terms of, you know, box office receipts. So okay. it's a huge, you know, television and film market. So that's why I went over to China. I had a little bit of, uh, you know, language uh, capabilities as well. But um, it was hard going at first, man, over in China. It took me about, I'd say, two and a half years to break into the industry over there. And one of the big, big helpers, to be honest, was going on the Chinese Bachelor show. Okay, yeah. Tell me Which is, it's not exactly acting. And I never, you know, I was always embarrassed of that, you know, when uh, in my career over there, because it's not acting stuff, right? It's like reality TV stuff. But mm -hmm. it gave me, you know, some social media followers over there. And I got noticed by some you know, agents and producers and whatnot. So that really, you know, helped me get my start over there. Right on. So uh, I've been doing that basically since 2012 is when I moved over there and uh, right up to now. And uh, I've been back in Canada, I guess, since kind of for 2019 and 2020. Uh, due, you know, partly to political reasons. It's not safe really to be Canadian over in China right now due to some political tensions. Mm -hmm. Um but uh, also, you know, I wanted to move back to Canada. It was a good excuse for rewilding purposes, to be honest. Um, yeah. Coming across, you know, work like yours, people like, you know, Mika Mortali and, and Daniel Vitalis and all these folks. Mm -hmm. um, I just felt super disconnected from nature being in, in China. You okay. know, there's just so many people over there and the, the built environment is so enormous. So that's kind of what, what's brought me back here. I'm still doing, you know, entertainment related work, though. Mm -hmm. um, I, I hosted a... Uh, a uh, Chinese uh, talk show out here in LA uh, oh. that brought me out here for about half a year. And I'm back out here in Los Angeles now trying to, uh, I'm pitching a television show that I've been working on right sort of for the past year. So I'm still in that, but uh, I'm rewilding as wherever and whenever I can, my friends, right. you know, fishing, hunting, camping, all that stuff. For sure. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I've seen you got your fix in prior to going to LA then, because I've seen some recent uh, snowy videos where you're out there in, in cold plunging into rivers and things like that. So <laughs> right on. Exactly. Yeah. But, uh, well, yeah, let's, let's talk about, I guess what, I mean, your, your experience over there in China. Yes. Lots of people, Canada, we obviously are used to having lots of space. I mean, maybe not so much you, you and me coming from, you know, around the GTA area, I guess, and being more populated and again, the built environment, but what, uh, where exactly were you stationed in there? And, and what is like nature connection like there? Did you have opportunities? Cause even of course in a big city, there's always, you know, city parks and things, green space that we can get out to and receive some nature benefits. Cause I know you're a guy who's into health as health and well-being as well. So, I mean, yeah. What was it like? Did you find spaces to go hike there or was it, was there a green space? I say the big problem in China is the air quality because oftentimes you can go into the countryside outside of the cities, but a lot of times the pollution will 
uh, there will actually be worse. So this is this is terrible air pollution, like air pollution on some days where you cannot see the building across from you. Okay. Right. If you're in a in a, in a high rise. Mm -hmm. So the whole idea of like hiking and camping in China, there's a huge knock against that because like, do I really want to leave the filtered air in my apartment and breathe in this disgusting air? out in the countryside, right? Exactly. So they are making uh, improvements to the air quality, particularly like in Beijing and Shanghai. I was based mainly in Beijing. The entire sort of entertainment industry is based out of there. I see. Um, but I spent a lot of time shooting because I did primarily t television and film work when I was there. Um, and uh, I, I shot projects all throughout the country in all different kinds of areas. Right. So there still are some quote unquote wild areas in China, mm -hmm. but um, there's pretty much people wherever you go. Like there's a village pretty much every kilometer, right? It, that's the big difference with, uh, with, with Canada. And also in China, the whole idea of the countryside or wilderness mm -hmm. is very negative because that's where kind of, you know, the poor Chinese peasants live. I see. Um, so that whole, you know, like romantic, oh, I'm going to go into you know, the countryside. It, it's, it doesn't really exist in China. So it was very hard to have any kind of connection whatsoever mm. to nature in China. Now that is changing. Maybe we can talk about that later on, but they're setting up national parks in China and, mm -hmm. you know, camping and hiking is really evolving as a, uh, emerging as a big, as a, as a significant pastime there now, just mm -hmm. over the past few years. Right. But it was right. hard, man. It was hard to maintain yeah. any semblance of nature connection whatsoever. You must have brought it with you because I have seen in looking at some of the research on nature connection that I'm doing, looking at uh, different studies coming out of China specifically. Of course, forest therapy has been huge in Japan for some time, but uh, actually specifically, yeah, look, there seems to be a, a call to the wild there in in uh, China. And that's what I was going to ask you, and maybe we can touch on that now, is yeah, what sort of um, you know, is there public lands? Like, it's kind of a naive question on my part, but like here we are in Ontario where we're 80 plus percent, you know, public crown lands. And, uh, I'm just curious what exactly is it like there? Is there national parks? Is it, it you're saying it becomes, it's becoming more accessible, but are, are folks actually demanding it and rewilding out in China? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because the entire country of China is technically public land, but not in the sense that you and I know it, because okay. the Communist Party owns all the land, right? Okay. The Communist Party is the only landowner in all of mm. China. So if you have, like, if you quote unquote own property, you're leasing property from the Communist Party for like 99 years. I see. You don't actually own it in perpetuity. Yeah. But in terms of like, you know, the public land that we know here in North America or Crown Land in Canada, um, the only thing they have that's similar, like they have forest reserves, regional forest reserves that, again, are, are open to resource extraction if industry wants to use them. The most, I guess, similar thing would be they are setting up a national park system over there. Um, and one of them is in like the headwaters of the Yangtze River mm -hmm. up in the mountains of kind of like the Qinghai, Tibet area. I believe it's called like the Three River uh, National Park. And another national park, which is actually bigger than Yellowstone, is kind of up near the North Korean and Russian border. And that park is being set up specifically for the Siberian tiger, um, which there are probably around, I believe the number is around four to 500 in Russia. And there's probably 50 of them in China and maybe another 50 in North Korea. Okay. So that's a pretty cool place that, that uh, you know, people can visit, but they're definitely right. trying to, they, they've had, uh, you know, political exchanges with the United States specifically around this the whole thing about you know how do you set up and manage national parks right. so th this this is a really you know it, it's wow, it's a yeah. great thing it's a great thing for you know rewilding getting people connected to nature for sure uh now now the danger in china is is the existing kind of you know provincial parks and stuff they do have there 
um, what happens is like local governments tend to try to turn them into an economic engine where there's paved walking paths. They put in like, you know, roller coasters and right. they do all this ridiculous stuff that's not really wild. Ah. So there's there's a, there's a real kind of struggle going on right now where the central government is trying to keep it pure mm -hmm. and make sure that the local governments don't destroy the notion of what, you know, a national park really is. Right. Yeah. But it's definitely that's a step in the right direction. Oh, that's fascinating, especially because, yeah, access to nature or the way different cultures, you know, utilize nature. It's not always the same as us where maybe it might be, uh, you know, at least the way you and I commune with nature is a little more reciprocal, um, kind of a give and take relationship, respecting it, conserving it. And, uh, yeah, I guess there's a whole host of different things that are going to kind of pop up. As we as as they go through that, what about like so? What about uh, well? You know what I'm thinking is, I'm I'm wondering if there's any movement within like uh, you know within China that say people are into like bushcraft camping or rewilding. I know you're you've got quite a social media following on your Chinese uh, social media account. So like, what uh, are you sharing your videos over there as well, or is there bushcraft videos going on out in the, out in these woods? Or yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely sending, uh, sharing you know, some of the camping and bushcraft stuff over there because <laughs> yeah. I, as I said. The um, it's it's definitely a rapidly emerging like new trends in China t seem to arise very rapidly. You know, through the internet, things mm -hmm. that they had were not present at all only five years ago. With the internet, they can explode on the scene very suddenly. So hiking, camping is definitely growing very rapidly. So it's the weird thing with China is this: if say in in Canada, say twenty percent of people go hiking and camping right on a semi regular basis. Um, in China, it might only be 2%, right. but because there's 1.4 billion people there, there's still a huge absolute number of people mm. who are doing this, right? Makes sense. So, so um, it's at a much lower percentage level than in a place like Canada or the United States, but um, there's just a huge absolute number of people that are still doing it. Uh, so to give you kind of a barometer, like Colombia and North Face have been there for a while. I would say probably you know five to ten years. But Patagonia just got into the market, I believe, about twelve months ago. Mm -hmm. So, so you know, of the big sort of outdoor equipment brands or you know apparel brands, uh, it's definitely not a mature market. But in terms of rewilding specifically, um, there is a move. A story I just saw about a group of of young people from Beijing and Shanghai who have set up this kind of rewilding commune in the hills of, uh, I believe it's Hubei province, which is kind of in central China. Uh, it's very hot during the summertime. Like it would rarely, you know, snow in the wintertime. Um, like they, you know, a lot of, it's kind of maybe similar to maybe, you know, Virginia uh, kind of climate okay. um, over there, but they've set it up. And from, from the article that I saw, it's basically, you know, youths who are disenfranchised with the sort of post-industrial meaningless of, you know, big mm -hmm. city life and the whole, you know, working overtime at these uh, big corporations and just wanting to get back to this simple but rewarding, you know, right. re natural life. So it's fascinating to see that there's already this this kind of thing popping up there. Yeah, wow. That is amazing, especially because, uh, well, I guess I can share your sentiment in, you know, having a, a business degree and then kind of foot in the door on all sorts of different business projects, but then always is that always that kind of call to rewilding, right? To get back to the wild. And it, like you say, it's physical labor. It, it's, you know, it's you're braving the elements, but at the same time, it's super rewarding, right? So um, it, it's just neat to see that with that growth of like industrialization that's happened in China, there's, with that comes this kind of push or this call, I guess, to the wild. So it's fascinating that you've been able to kind of experience that or see that, I guess, you know, yourself. What, um, 
I wanted to ask you about pollution. Like, so yeah, pollution city bad, but when you're all over the country in different remote areas, have you been into different forests and <laughs> mountain ranges and that air quality gets better and it's quite a beautiful, beautiful nature that I'm assuming if, if Siberian tires or tigers that is, are supposed to be wandering around. Right. So what's that like though, <laughs> when you get out there? Yeah, I mean, there definitely are some some clean areas. I shot a TV show for four months out in this province called Guizhou, which is way, way out in the west. Kind of like it's, I would say, it's it's very mountainous. Um, the air quality was very good there. Uh, yeah. It was extremely rural, very rural, very poor sort of agricultural soil, but there was still tons of people there, as there is in all of China. Um, but uh, it's weird because in an effort to clean up the air in the cities, what they've done is they pushed a lot of the coal uh, powered fire, uh, sorry, coal powered, uh, coal fired power plants out into the countryside. Right. So it's not polluting the city air anymore because in the city, you also have the problem with all the, the tailpipe exhaust from all these vehicles, because, you know, Shanghai and Beijing are cities of 20 million plus people. So there's just a huge amount of, you know, uh, air pollution coming from vehicles alone. So they are rapidly shifting. Like I think, China last year spent more on renewable energy installation than the European Union and the United States combined. Mm-hmm. Um, so they are making a rapid push into that, but there's still, you know, a huge part of the grid is still powered by coal. Um, so it is a problem. The air quality is getting better rapidly in Beijing and Shanghai, but it's still quite a bit of a problem in a lot of the countryside now. But yes, there are populations of Siberian tigers. Um, there is a population of also, uh, it's called the Amur leopard, which is a uh, like endemic, I guess, to southern Russia and then central and northern China. There's about 60 of those big cats left, and their range is actually expanding. Their numbers are going up. The central government is doing a concerted effort to try to maintain connectivity of their habitat. So that whole kind of, you know, connectivity of, of landscapes is something that's emerging there as well awesome. right like as it is in, in north america so there are definitely some some promising signs there's definitely stuff worth saving in china it's not yeah. completely gone mm-hmm. it's just being pushed to the margins much more so than in, in a place like north america right well it's a landmass uh, it's a it's a giant country right so i mean yeah definitely there's lots of places out there to rewild and that's the amazing thing about nature right um take care of it and let it uh, regenerate itself, right? And good things will come from that for sure. So hopefully this demand and this push keeps going. But let's uh, let's do the segue now into bringing you back home to Ontario and uh, everything. I guess what you said, it was kind of that call for nature connection yourself that came back. I mean, there's other reasons, but when you came back, what, uh, what kind of made you decide to go and do this project that you're working on right now. In fact, maybe let's talk about that project. And uh, yeah, and then we can get into some rewilding practices and different conservation stuff going on. But totally. What, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. What well, exactly guess, is that project about? Um, well, I guess maybe just, like, just firstly, like this specific thing that happened to me in China was like, I, I was a co-host on this nationally broadcast uh, uh, talk show and there was an episode on the environment and I kind of had to lead the charge of, of the, um, the other co-hosts on that because the, the producers knew that, you know, I was sort of an outdoorsy guy. But doing all the research for that, I read a book called The Sixth Extinction by Elizabeth Colbert. I don't know if you're familiar with that book. Familiar, but, uh, I don't it, know, though. What, uh, got it. It's, definitely bit, yeah. it, it's, it's fascinating, man. It won the Pulitzer Prize in 2015. Um, a lot of the data probably is not necessarily so up-to-date anymore, but it just blew my mind about the scope of, you know, uh, plastic pollution and biodiversity loss and also, like, the real impacts of climate change. 
So that really scared me and also made me this urge to rewild and reconnect to nature was quadrupled after that. Mm. But uh, yeah, after getting back to Canada, man, honestly, I just spent six months where I just disconnected myself from everything. And I just spent a ton of time out in the bush, mm. just sort of reconnecting and kind of trying to unwind from, you know, all my time in China. So that was that was phenomenal. I got my gun license, which I'd never had. I got my hunting license. Mm. Um, I, re I got my you know fishing license again. And uh, just got out there and had, had a phenomenal time. And that's kind of when I started coming up with, you know, ideas about how can I combine, you know, my, my passion for rewilding with, you know, my profession of kind of acting and, and television and film. So that's when I started looking for, you know, what stories could I tell that have a big part of kind of rewilding as the theme to the show. So, you know, my, the television show that I'm developing is called, uh, is called Thor's Angels. And I don't want to get too much into it, but it takes place basically around the year of 400 AD, it's dealing with the Romans and the Huns and, the, and the, the Celtic tribes and the German tribes. And I just I just will say that, you know, rewilding and the mm. power of nature connection is definitely a major theme in the story. Right. right. So uh, that's what I'm out here. And uh, it, it took, awesome. it's taken me, basically, it's taken me much more than a year to sort of complete the work to a point where it's ready to start pitching, mm. uh, which is why I'm out here in Los Angeles uh, to start awesome. that process. So, uh, I'm pretty excited about it, man. That's awesome. And, and, and looking at some of those cultures you're mentioned, mentioning in, yeah, rewilding, uh, it wasn't a lifestyle choice, I guess, for those folks, right? It was very much part of their everyday, right? Constantly uh, in commune with the elements. And uh, yeah, just thinking about some of those like uh, tribes that you mentioned, that's uh, it's just very much a way of life, right? So. Oh, yeah. Man. And what's interesting is that the original, the original rewilder, so this is a guy named uh, Amianus Marcellinus, there's a bunch of, you know, uh, Roman historians at that time who, you know, at the peak of the Roman Empire, they were so technologically advanced, right? They had mm. central heating. They had centrally heated floors. They had so much technology. And uh, there was so much wealth that for a lot of, of, of these historians, what they were lamenting was they, they looked at some of these, you know, particularly the German tribes, and they said, wow, they're so, like, you know, muscular and fit and ferocious people because they live in this sort of very hostile and wild environment, right? And mm -hmm. it's like the environment creates the, the people. And they were lamenting the fact that, you know, Romans are becoming fat and lazy and uh, basically corrupted by civilization and technology, right? Mm -hmm. So that theme, I think, is very similar to the theme that we're dealing with in the post-industrial world with a lot of the rewilding stuff. So when I was reading some of these, you know, these uh, these historians writing back, you know, in 300 AD and 10 AD, I'm like, wow, these guys are like the original rewilders. It wow. obviously wasn't called it back then, but they were all like, we need to get the, the Roman youth need to be living like this at mm. some point in their youth to rekindle that kind of ferocity and passion and 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 hardness right. that they were starting to lose because of the corrupting nature of technology mm -hmm. and civilization so oh, it, it's, it's very interesting man yeah definitely something it seems like that the rites of passage is is and and using nature as rites of passages whether it be a you know backcountry camping trip or just uh, doing some cold plunge therapy just to say that you can you can do it right but it's it's these little things that we can do now and i think it's so important so it's, it's pretty i'm really excited to see uh see that come out and see everything that develops with that for sure Without a doubt. One thing I wanted to say uh, about your story, I love that, yeah, here you are over Canadian, over in China, but you come back and you go deep into the woods and you, and you got your, your gun license, you said, and I think it's amazing that the restorative uh, 
you know, aspects of nature allow for creativity and doors to open. So I'm just really, again, really excited to see what comes of all this, your project right now. But uh, yeah, tell me about your, you say, gun license. So what was the purpose of said gun licenses? Hunting, is, has that been a part of your rewilding, uh, you know, practice? What's that been like for you since coming back? Absolutely, man. It was just a way, you know, I, when I was over in China, I had been a vegan. Uh, I bought it into that whole, um, I think, lifestyle, you know, particularly after seeing the film um, Cowspiracy. Okay. You know, which does actually have a lot of misleading facts in it, uh, in hindsight. But at the time, I was like, this is the best thing I can do for the environment. One thing I definitely mm -hmm. found on a vegan diet, other than, you know, my health going downhill, was uh, that I, it just made me feel more disconnected from nature, I found. Um, and when I got back to Ontario, you know, switching back to kind of a paleo diet for health reasons, I was also like, you know, disenfranchised with the industrial agriculture system. And the idea of, I'd always been a fisherman my entire life. I'm like, why not get into hunting? It's the same, it's regulated just as sustainably, you know, in a country like Canada, the United States, why not get out there? There's more of a learning curve, I would say to hunting, mm -hmm. but I was like, I absolutely have to make this part of my my lifestyle because it's just an amazing way to get wild food and to be connected to your local landscape, right? right. Yeah, to definitely. really feel a part. Because one of the big things with veganism, I don't know if you've ever experimented with that, uh, but it it it's kind of like the whole, you know, leave only footsteps, take only pictures kind mm -hmm. of, you know, mentality. Um, like the environmentalism versus conservation kind of, uh, right. kind of, kind of that we talked about before. Um, and I definitely feel the conservation split uh, or, or philosophy is definitely more engaging because it, you know, it directly connects you to your, to your landscape. But, you know, to answer your question, my, the first season, the first year that I got my license, I went out uh, during the Turkey season for about a week. I was not successful, but had the time of my life, man, like being out in the right. woods. I don't know if you, if you find this, but being out in the woods with a firearm right. in full camo with this purpose, mm -hmm. it just, it's an entirely different feeling. It's religious. I think only like religious terminology can really explain it, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. it's a completely different feeling than if you're just going through the woods on a hike. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I recently just read a paper um, and it actually was a book. I just finished the nature principle by Richard Louvre. So same individual who had wrote uh, last child in the woods and essentially, um, you know, a lot of talk, a lot of readings and writings about nature connection seem to leave a hunting out where, as I think, because a lot of people might seem it as uh, different from an, an extraction standpoint. But as far as nature connection goes, it's very similar to appreciative uh, practices where one might be, you know, mindful of, say, the beauty of nature or being grateful for a, a you know, a, a lovely landscape or something like that, right? But yeah, so the fact that you're saying like how you actually felt that difference in you, like, I mean, I, I would, and I would agree just from being out in the woods and hunting turkeys and when you're quiet and you're trying to get close to a bird that's quite like, you know, instinct tells it to be weary of everything that moves. Like, uh, yeah, being out there for a week and not getting one sounds familiar. <laughs> it sounds familiar, actually. But uh, yeah, no, there is something different about it. So yeah, I appreciate you saying oh, that for sure. Yeah, totally, man. It was, it was absolutely amazing. And I really do think in terms of, you know, reconnecting people who have grown up in urban environments into nature, Right. Because I think that's one of the biggest problems right now is, you know, he, humanity's disconnection from nature because humans, you know, tend to protect the things that we love. And uh, if mm -hmm. huge percentage of human population no longer has a connection to nature, that's very dangerous because we won't necessarily, you know, elect political leaders that are going to protect nature in the way that we need it to. So I really see like food as the gateway drug to mm. nature connection. Well and that's why, you know, I think fishing and hunting, everybody loves food. It's, you know, like, 
food, water, and sex. That's what every human is like programmed to desire. Exactly. So, <laughs> right. to you know, to um, there's nothing I think more you know in the whole sort of hipster movement of you know gluten free tacos and <laughs> baking your own sourdough bread, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, you can't get more balls deep into the food movement than yeah. harvesting or gather, like hunting and gathering hunting yourself. Out, yeah, right. So getting people out into the woods uh, via that method of, of with an objective of food collection, I mm -hmm. think is a very powerful and under uh, utilized strategy for, for looking at connecting people to nature, man. Well said. And I, and I do think there's a, a almost like a, there's a market out there, if you will, if you think, not to, not to say to profit from said market, but there's a, a community of individuals out there who are ex-vegans looking to incorporate meat, maybe for whatever reasons, but they're not looking, like you said, not looking to the, you know, big ag and the conventional food system. They're looking to go procure it themselves. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the most, I think that's one of the great things about a vegan lifestyle or vegan diet is that you're able to gain skills in making food that doesn't involve meat because when it actually comes down to it trying to rely off just meat for wild meat for you know your diet if you want to eat a lot of meat it's it's a tough go right so and that's in a lovely place like ontario where we have opportunity and and manage and lands manage to hunt and conserve lots of animals so um for absolutely sure, without a doubt well, let's do this because you had mentioned, um, you know, voting governments in and uh, yeah, I, I've just taken a browse at your Instagram, seeing all the awesome videos on different conservation things that you're calling attention to and uh, calling out, you know, in this day and age. And I think that's so important because it, it's it's interesting times politically and it takes uh, courage, right, to sometimes stand up and advocate for the, vo the voiceless, essentially. And I think, you know, doing the type of environmentalism or conservation that, that you do, I think is very noble. So, I mean, what, well, I guess before we kind of get into your, you know, some of these specific issues is environmentalism or conservationism. Is that something that you've kind of, was that always there or was it the first, the nature connection, the love for nature? Like what was your whole life story? Like what, were you always a conservationist or, um, or like you said, you had been fishing for a while, but yeah, what kind of came first for you? Definitely. I mean, yeah, I think there was always a connection there, primarily because of fishing, to be honest. Mm. Uh, you know, both my mother and my father were, were fishermen and uh, spending all this time in nature fishing. When you see where your food comes from and the notion that if that lake or place gets polluted, your food's mm. polluted, therefore you are polluted. That really closes the loop on a on a on a, on a very personal level. Right. So I think it all stems from that, man, to be honest. And that goes back to the, you know, the power of food as, as a gateway to nature connection. Sure. Um, I think it all stems from that, man. I'm, you know, family vacations in Florida during the, during the, during the uh, winter time, fishing down there mm -hmm. all the time off the right. beach. And then, you know, summers in central Ontario at our family cottage, just fishing yeah. like for, you know, three months straight as a kid. It's, that's what it is. It's the antidote, right? Get kids out there fishing, get them connecting. I think when you're a young kid and you catch your first fish it's like something instinctual like you said right where it's just like wow there's this deep connection you're going to remember that day you know forever right so it is it might just very well be the antidote get folks out in nature then like you said from there they're protecting the things that they love right so it's awesome exactly and i yeah. saw a hilarious uh, t-shirt this one old timer guy was wearing down in florida once and it said something like have your teenagers fish teach your teenagers to fish so they won't be out doing drugs or something like that, right? Because if, <laughs> right, yeah. if you have a teenager who's into fishing, they're not going to be out doing drugs. And that's true for me, man. When I was a teen, 
I was more interested in in, uh, in fishing than, than doing drugs. That's, right. that, that's for sure. Right. Yeah. But, no. uh, <laughs> that's good stuff. It, def- it definitely uh, it definitely sets like the precedent. I think just for that love and the connection and just wanting to yeah protect it and be in it. Right. So. That's awesome. Totally. So yeah, let's talk about that. Some things that uh, allow us to be in it. It's interesting because you're, I mean, it, again, a naive question from me asking about, you know, public land in China. I mean, we're lucky over here that we have laws and things that protect our nature. I'm, of course, that is something that's in China, I'm sure as well. But over here, we have different, uh, you know, government agencies and things protecting things. And it's kind of interesting in this time uh, to see things start to get axed, especially under the current Ontario government. So I, I, critical of the current government for a lot of the videos that I've seen you posting and otherwise if it wasn't for that I really wouldn't have had caught wind on that so I mean tell folks how maybe you started to uh, or where exactly you're doing your research or how are you kind of coming across these things is there any resources you want to share with Ontarians and anybody else for that matter that's interested Definitely. I mean, if you're concerned about the environment in in, uh, Ontario, whether you're a conservationist, right, like you're an outdoors person or you're an environmentalist, you know, kind of the take only pictures, leave only footsteps kind of crowd, I would definitely follow, you know, Ontario Nature um, and uh, Environmental Defense, those two organizations. They have a lot of information. They're very politically focused organizations. Like I would say probably the best organization for conservation in in, uh, in Canada would be the Nature Conservancy. In terms of their overall impact, but they're not—they're apolitical, right? All they do is conserve lands, right. and they actually get twenty million dollars a year from the federal government. They get a few mil from each of the provincial governments every year for their operating budget, but uh, they're out there—you know—conserving like a hundred million dollars worth of land every year. They're the biggest right. environmental organization in Canada. But again, when it comes to political stuff, they don't enter into that phrase strategically. Mm. So if you want information on, you know, what are the big issues and how you can take action, it would definitely be environmental defense and Ontario nature. I would also say that, you know, uh, the only magazine I subscribe to is the Toronto star because they actually do have a few kind of like beat reporters that are focused specifically on these environmental issues. Mm. So I get a lot of good stuff, uh, from, from the Toronto star as well. I see. Okay. So, uh, well, what you said, Ontario nature.org is the one and then yours. And then the other one was yours to protect. .ca is that yeah yeah ontarionature.org and then i think environmental defense website is like envirodefense.ca oh, okay, yeah. right uh their instagram accounts are also fantastic they put all their stuff in there that i would recommend following them um but uh yeah yours to protect.ca is interesting because it's made by ontario nature envirodefense ecojustice a number of these organizations right. and it's essentially a map and it has all these hot spots and you can find, you know, you'll be surprised. There might be something going on in your neighborhood that you had no idea was going on. And there's action items. And a lot of these action items now under the current government have to do with um, these things called minister zoning orders, which are technically supposed to be emergency, um, you know, actions taken by the government uh, in a situation of a crisis, essentially. But what they're using this power to do is to basically ram through development projects without doing environmental um uh, assessments okay. or doing any kind of local consultation with local uh, town councils or, you know, even hmm. uh, getting around the protections of the Ontario Greenbelt, which it wow. protects a huge swath of the area around the, the greater Toronto area. So a lot of these problems right now are around these these problems with the M- MZOs coming up from the current government. Okay. It's interesting, too, because I'm thinking of like things when, when it comes to building a house or cabin there's all these continued regulations and things like that. And obviously environmental assessments, which are 
important to make you know depending on where one is building especially so i'm just thinking of me myself looking at building uh you know a cabin up on 28 acres of the canadian shield obviously you want to make sure your your impact is light and i'm obviously cognizant of that but i'm just thinking of all the regulations and red tape that we civilians have to go through but then here is the government kind of just in these times right it's just very again it's just kind of par for the course it seems these days but here they are just kind of doing what they want to do and using these types of like so an mzo kind of like an executive order type thing essentially is what i'm getting out of it is that was that essentially it or exactly wow, exactly right? wow. and, and it's even more like potentially more you know further reaching than an executive order because these are things that really should only be used during the time of a, a crisis mm -hmm. um like i think you know the the uh, uh, Premier Ford has used, I think, about 40 of these MZOs in the past 12 months. But in mm. the past 10 years, I think there was only about 30 of them used. Mm. So he's really ramped them up. And especially during the time of you know, COVID, when all the news is focused on that, he's trying to, I think, bang through a lot of these things. He's a very you know, anti-environment. You can tell that our Premier is very disconnected from nature himself, personally. Mm. Um, it's just really... It's really unfortunate. And, and a, another big thing, I think there's this notion in Ontario that because there is so much crown land in the north of the province, that we should basically be able to run roughshod over, over southern Ontario. Mm. But it's very dangerous idea because, very first much. of all, like, you know, any community, you need to have healthy functioning ecosystems um, for clean water and clean food production, right? Mm -hmm. Also for green space for residents. Yeah. And then there's also the whole fact that Southern Ontario is the most ecologically important and productive land in the entire province. So the kind of species that are around, for example, from where you are, right, in the greater sort of Windsor area around that north coast of uh, Lake Erie, mm -hmm. that's hardcore like Car Carolinian forest. And there's a very small amount of Carolinian forest in all of Canada. It's basically just that, basically from Windsor to Toronto. And that's the most like biologically diverse and biologically productive uh, land in the entire in the entire province. So right. the back like, you know, before human settlement or before European settlement, the highest numbers of like large mammals, you know, per square acre, per acre or per hectare or whatever would absolutely be, you know, where you are right now, right. where Toronto is right now. Mm -hmm. So um it's really important for, you know, because so many of these also species now are, are threatened or endangered mm -hmm. that we do maintain, you know, healthy functioning ecosystems in, in southern Ontario and mm -hmm. not just let them get all paved over and destroyed and fragmented because there's so many unique species found there and nowhere else in the province and the country. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think it's a fallacy. Like, you know, north of, north of Lake Superior is basically half the province, but the land up there is so ecologically you know, poor, I would say not bad, yeah. but it's just so unproductive, right. In productive terms of the right. amount of biomass per, per acre per hectare. Mm -hmm. So the value of an acre of land in Southern Ontario to the environment is much higher than the value of an acre of land in, you know, moose right. factory, Ontario. Interesting. Yeah. Right. And, and then that's scary too, because all this land down here, obviously productive. So then of course we're farming it right. And, and plowing over and, and just kind of killing the soil. So, I mean, like you say, me growing up just outside of Windsor and, you know, Southern Ontario, as far as you can go. And kind of that whole area down there is just very like deserted and, and flat. Now in like recent 10, 10 years or so, sure. A lot of, uh, like you're saying, a lot of species, a lot of animals in this area, they are coming back, but at the same time, um, you know, that's from efforts, that's from long-term efforts, of conservation going on in Ontario. So we'd hate to see, you know, things just get plowed over and it, it is that kind of reductionist 
mindset or local mindset that I could see how, you know, kind of Doug Ford has that, not realizing that, you know, rivers are flowing from all the way from northern Ontario all the way down through. So we can't just like pave over all of this and, oh, let that go. Everything will be fine. It's like a little ball of cancer just waiting to kind of expand and grow right into into that stuff or you know so i'm just uh, yeah i'm very cognizant of the fact that yeah we're just constantly plowing over this stuff and, and it's it's not good yeah exactly man it just like you know the, the farmland like many people don't realize the green belt was really created by premier mike harris who was also conservative premier back in the 1990s because he realized that a like areas of the green belt and other areas in southern ontario that it protects um that's the headwater for so many different rivers that we rely on for our drinking water, right? Mm -hmm. Because the water in these areas, um, a lot of it's like the Oak Ridge's moraine, which is, you know, all these uh, like fine sand sort of uh, deposited by the glaciers as they were retreating 10,000 years ago, but giant aquifers underneath there. It's really important to leave those areas for the health of also the Great Lakes, right? Because so many rivers that drain into Lake Erie, into Lake Ontario, even to Lake Huron will have their headwaters there, also Lake Simcoe. Um, and then just for the production of food, because it's the best farmland. I mean, many people don't realize it from Toronto. Mm -hmm. If you're from Toronto, you know, or, or Windsor or another big city, that the only arable land in Ontario is essentially, is, is essentially south of Lake Simcoe. And then the other 90% of the province to the north, that's Canadian Shield and, right. and Boreal Forest and, you know, all that, you know, some, some mixed, other mixed kind of uh, eco, eco zones, but right. none of that's really arable. Yeah. So it's really important that you uh, that you that you do protect that for sure, man. Yeah, without a doubt. And I had seen now. I guess I wanted to get a few links and share some petitions or anything because I know you've been sharing some. So I don't know if there's any current or ones are old, um, but I know there was the whole that one four hundred highway series that was looking to go through the green belt there, and it was um, I forget four oh something or other. But anyways, I don't know if you could say more about about that one for folks. Definitely, man. Yeah. So I actually just got an email today from Environmental Defense because they wanted me to do a video on that. Because uh, the first video I did for them on TikTok, um, it uh, it got their petition about eight thousand signatures in twenty four hours. So nice. that's the power of TikTok, man. I hope you wow. you start start sharing some of your content on TikTok because really? the, the 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 organic reach there is just unbelievable compared to Instagram. Hmm. Uh, so, uh, but anyways. Um, and there's almost nobody, there's nobody like in the hunting or, or I would say outdoors in general, definitely like there's only, I think, two people in the bushcraft space that I've been able to find on there. But there's a real dearth of creators mm. in this in this uh, this space, you know, your and I spaces. But um, anyways, yeah, the four, the Highway 413, which is essentially going to be going from around King, uh, looping around Brampton and then connecting down to the 401. Um it is a concept. I think it's going to cost between somewhere between six and ten billion dollars, and it was rejected under the last two governments because it was shown by third-party engineering analysis it only saved commuters about you know thirty to sixty seconds of right. time. So it doesn't make any sense. But Doug Ford's very pro-development, and if it could make six to ten billion dollars for his development and construction buddies, you know he's he's all over that. Because, right. uh, uh, you know, all, all the environmental and other uh, financial, you know, repercussions be damned. But it would be going over something like 85 main river and tributary arms of, of different rivers that flow through that area, like the headwaters of the Humber and the Credit and a number of other rivers. It would be really disastrous. It would also pave over, I think, about 4,000 acres of prime farmland. So... Uh, Environmental Defense and Ontario Nature were running petitions against this project, but what they've decided to do with a new petition is they're trying to get the federal government 
to come in and require an environmental assessment. Because mm. one of the laws that Doug Ford has recently changed is that basically if they want to, they can kind of jam through things without environmental assessments, which should be illegal. It actually is illegal under the Environmental uh, Bill of Rights of Ontario. Really? Um, so what they've changed their strategy, and now they're going to call on the Minister of the Environment, I believe it's Wilkinson, uh, in the federal government, to come in because rivers, if they're navigable by boat, mm -hmm. they're technically under the jurisdiction of the federal government. And also, if there's any threatened or endangered fish species in any of these rivers, which there are, right, multiple mm -hmm. ones, um, mm -hmm. and it, it technically is under the uh, purvey of the federal government. So they're trying to draw the federal government's attention to this. And if they require an environmental assessment for this project, it'll probably take four or five years before that's complete. And mm -hmm. Doug Ford will probably be dead of a heart attack because he's morbidly <laughs> obese by then. So uh, that should be, you know, out of the out of the out of the uh the danger zone but yeah no well that's just it the way this goes who knows hopefully somebody comes in and cares concern or has more concern over the environment it's going to be interesting come election time indeed when in ontario because uh it's uh there's just a whole lot of things just not making sense i'm just i'm just thinking specifically i'm beating around here but yeah like uh, small businesses being closed um you know by by a conservative government right it's just it's interesting and then of course with that comes all these you know uh destruction of of environmental lands and you know, important areas and whatnot so honestly i just i couldn't see things going well so i don't think whether the heart attack gets them or not it's i, I just don't see it uh, having a long future so let's hope let's hope that things like that actually uh go through so is there a petition then with that or no they're they're actually going to the federal government there's a brand new petition, oh, so they've is. already sent a letter to the minister. But yeah, if if your if your followers could uh, could sign that petition on the environmental environmental defense, I think it's envirodefense.ca. Okay, that petition's up right now, and it's to call the federal government to come in and basically, you know, require them to to follow the law and do an environmental review for the project, which would delay it by five years, and by that time, Doug Ford's probably out of office, yeah, you know, or deceased. So uh, <laughs> that's. Uh, that, that's shouldn't probably be a good thing. Sounds like I'm laughing. I was. I shouldn't be laughing about that, but I. I kind of right now. I'm just. I don't know where I'm uh, looking for. I'm not looking for leadership in current leaders, at least in the government. That's for sure. So, that's why it's. I think it takes shows like this, and I've actually been getting a lot of good feedback lately, and in, in having people like you on who are aren't afraid right now to voice or be critical of these people, these elected officials who work for us. So you know, uh, again, wishing wishing no uh, ill harm on anybody. Obviously, we're not, but I'm just saying, um, yeah, nature is medicine. That's all. We'll leave it at there. If, if hopefully Doug Ford gets his gets his dose, indeed, we want to want to see him do that so um because like right like you said with connection to nature or co contact with nature comes the love for nature and then hopefully wants to protect it so yeah that or we just get him out in the woods with a big dose of psilocybin mushrooms and and uh <laughs> that normally i think if all political leaders just did a big dose of psilocybin mushrooms a big hero dose in the woods right now that would solve a lot of problems <laughs> but that's absolutely man but that's, my, that's my opinion but anyways um yeah one other thing is the species at risk stuff um because i had uh having caribou here in ontario talking about hunting earlier uh, going hunting uh caribou where they're actually doing you know quite well uh out west has always been a thing for me anyways i've always wanted to do that um totally but here in ontario uh we do have caribou species the boreal caribou and um i know there's protectcaribou.ca that's a really neat initiative um to check out for sure but have you looked into that specifically because i know you did a post on that and i just didn't know if there was anything uh, that you wanted to maybe bring up or what what you've learned about that 
Definitely. Well, yeah, like there's the definite important distinction. Like you said, there's the, you know, the, the tundra caribou or the Arctic caribou. I, I think there's multiple names, you know, for that, for that half of the caribou population. And then there's the, the woodland caribou, right. You know, or sometimes I guess there's a, some people call it the mountain caribou, but um, the woodland caribou is really the one that's in, in, in under threat. It's a, it's threatened officially and in the, in the, under the Sarah act, you know, which is mm -hmm. our, the Canadian endangered species act. And it's pretty much in trouble, you know, in, in Alberta, in BC, in Ontario. I think it might be doing slightly better in Quebec. But it's one of those species that actually does not do well with commercial logging. Uh, that's the main threat to what's going on with uh, that species because they really need old growth forest, right? right? And a lot of times for the logging industry, there's this weird, you know, there, there's a very weird uh, notion out there where I think uh, some of the hardcore environmentalists believe that logging of any kind is terrible, right? You should never cut down a tree, which I think is untrue, right? And then, because logging can be very sustainably done, it's a great source, you know, it's much better than using plastic, right, oh, for right. stuff or, or petroleum-based things. And then on the same side of the scale, there's people that are, uh, I think, in industry and sort of like definitely something in, that's circulating among, I don't know, maybe the, the, the far right or certain conservative circles that any kind of logging is sustainable. But- like most things, right? The truth is somewhere it's more nuanced than that. It, it's right. it's sort of gray instead of black and white. Sure. So with with the mountain caribou, you know, logging in old growth forests, you know, trees that are three four hundred years old, that's the only kind of habitat that uh, woodland caribou can live in because mm -hmm. they eat you know specific species of lichen that live on those trees, and in second and and, and you know third growth trees that are maybe fifty or hundred years old, they just can't live in those areas. So the logging industry of these old, these very, you know, economically profitable old growth forests, it's really terrible for the, for the woodland caribou. And that's why they're experiencing declines, you know, all across the, uh, the country, including here in Ontario. Right. But one of the bad things that just happened under Doug Ford is that he exempted the logging industry indefinitely from all protections of the Ontario Endangered Species Act. Mm -hmm. um, so that means that they don't have to basically consider the woodland caribou when they're going around logging. So that's, it's a really bad sign for the already threatened uh, woodland caribou in uh, in Ontario. And like you mentioned, mm -hmm. you know, the, I guess, you know, tundra, plains, Arctic caribou, whatever you want to call them, those big, you know, mobile herds that live, mm -hmm. you know, north of the tree line in many situations in tundra areas, their populations are still very robust and they're, they're hunted quite heavily, actually, right, and yeah. sustainably it's by both indigenous yeah. and, and non-indigenous, uh, you know, quotas. So um, it, it's, it's a tale of two cities, really, on those, those two caribou populations. Well, I'm glad you, you mentioned the kind of paradox that's it's always there in nature, right? So uh, logging, not necessarily small scale, like ecological forestry can be a great thing for forest health, right? Whereas mass, huge scale, again, I guess the way in which we're going about it, right, is, is the important thing. Exactly. Yeah. And like, you know, also focusing logging on second and third growth, like areas that have already been logged, you know, 50 years ago, relogging that as opposed to logging virgin, especially old growth forests, just because it takes so long to regenerate, staying away from that, uh, because that's the critical habitat. And it's funny, there's many other species, right, mm -hmm. that actually do better, like moose is a great example with you right. know the much smaller clear cuts now that are done in the logging industry mm -hmm. it's very beneficial for them because that kind of uh what is it called that edge habitat right also mm -hmm. for most members of the deer family right. where you have wood and then open areas it's it's amazing for you know food sources and and th th them just their mobility and everything so yeah. it's uh it, it's it's a nuanced situation for sure one crazy thing to remember mm -hmm. is that 
in North America, like 10,000 or 11,000 years ago, there were still three species of elephant in North America. There's a great book called The Eternal Frontier, which is, which is about the paleoecology of North America, right? And it talks about all the different kinds of species over time that the continent has seen. And uh, there was the mastodon, which was the biggest elephant for, for, sorry, there was the woolly mammoth, there was the mastodon, and there was one other elephant species. The mastodon essentially was in the temperate forests, like what most of Ontario is today. The woolly mammoth, woolly mammoth was further north. But like elephants that are left in Asia and Africa, what they do is they go through the forest and they're knocking down trees. They're eating entire branches off trees. Mm -hmm. They're like giant bulldozers. And when you get a herd of these things going through, they'd almost act like a little like clear cut mini forestry operation right. themselves. And now that we don't have these animals on the landscape, it's not natural to have no disturbance of forests for very long periods of time at all. Right. So that's another reason. It's actually natural to have these forest disturbances, right? That's amazing. So that, that's another reason why, you know, like no logging at all is also not the answer because it's it's taking away this kind of uh, improvement to, to wildlife habitat. Right. Yeah. The edge, like you say, the edge habitat is so important. What was the, uh, what was that book that you mentioned? I'll put that in the show notes. It's, I believe it's by uh, Tim Flannery. Uh, it's called The Eternal Frontier. It blew my mind, that book, man. Absolutely cool. blew my mind. Eternal Frontier. Yeah, and no, I'll definitely uh, put that in the show notes and let, let folks take a look at it. Um, yeah, because, I mean, that's just it. This, these, it's amazing to see how nature itself is just this synergistic. You know, we, we look at things like, say, a forest fire or yeah, tr a bunch of trees getting, you know, run over by elephants as a, as a bad thing. for. Yeah, sure, if you're the tree you know, getting burnt down <laughs> or getting run over. But as far as, you know, trees in general and the health of the forest, we're seeing, you know, it's it's that whole thing in nature. It's, you know, you need death to have life, right? And it's just a, an important part of it. Exactly, man, yeah. exactly. And, you know, Flannery, like, they don't really know, like, the, the, the Pleistocene extinctions, right? There's some paleoecologists that believe it was more climate change. There's some believe that it was, it was more human predation, right? For the first time you had humans predating on these big species that had very low fertility rates. And they weren't able, because like when you have human hunters who can run an entire herd of mastodons off a cliff, right? Mm -hmm. That's, they're not used to uh, mortality at that level. So there's, Tim Flannery is definitely at a camp that it was like more 80% human predation and 20% climate change mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that did it, like that was the cause of the Pleistocene extinction. So if that human predation was not there, because these animals, unlike the big you know, megafauna in Eurasia and Africa that had been used to human predation for a very long period of time, they had essentially evolved beside each other. It was a completely new phenomenon in North America. And uh, we would still have like the American lion right. and maybe, you know, the uh, definitely the three species of elephant and all these, some of these bigger animals would still be there. So mm. it, it's very much kind of a missing part of the puzzle in North America. So it's, it's kind of interesting. Without a doubt. Now, here's a question for you. Would you still be doing your backcountry bushcraft camping if there was uh, elephants roaming or, or big tigers roaming? Absolutely <laughs> not, man. <laughs> We're talking about cultures, right? Yeah, of course. If you're if if a Siberian tiger is going to be rolling through camp, I think I don't know if they make tiger spray. I know bear spray is a thing because I've uh, I've used it, but uh, but right, like what's uh, geez, that's that's oh, for sure. Totally. I mean, if they if they had dire wolves and if they had wow, right? short faced bears, which I think the short faced bear was like double the size of a grizzly and it could run faster or something like that. 
man, I wouldn't be there. I mean, there's still a lot of people who, who it, it's definitely more dangerous going camping in, you know, the Western half of the continent where, mm-hmm. where the brown bear is. Right. Yeah. Um, but, uh, uh, it would be freaky, man, to have oh, those yeah. animals out there, but you know what, having the predators, even like, you know, the, the, the black bear and, and the, uh, the wolf in mm-hmm. Ontario, that's what, that's what the magic is. Yeah. The, these magical forest predators. I mean, it's dangerous, but that's what makes it magical is you have the whole duality, right. Of, right. of existence there where it's dangerous, but also wonderful. And, mm. uh, if they weren't there, man, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be nearly as interesting. Right. It would be so boring to go camping. I don't know what you feel on that. But. Oh, definitely. It's, that's the, uh, the, the mystical piece. That's like, uh, what is it about, uh, you know, the, the, the danger or the high risk in some of these wilderness settings or, or just the awe and beauty of it. Right. I think there's something there. I think it, allows us to, uh, you know, cultivate meaning in our life and have purpose knowing, you know, uh, I think, uh, I mean, I'm looking, thinking back to my research right now, but uh, depression and things like that, by going into the woods and doing some of these wilderness expeditions, young kids or, uh, you know, people who have maybe gone astray as far as like the law or something like that, going into some of these programs where they're going through wilderness expeditions and they're coming out, you know, basically better than any type of like, juvenile hall type thing or whatever they wherever they send young youth these days but uh yeah it's definitely some therapeutic medicine there and i think there's something to do in that that uh danger or risk or absolutely man and that's exactly what amianus marcellinus was saying back in 300 ad right right. with uh in in his roman Mm -hmm. time so it's fascinating well you know what that's uh that's i'm glad you brought that up because i do well we already touched on your whole project but i mean tell folks uh i'm gonna ask you the last question that I ask every guest here in just a minute, but tell folks a little bit more about where they can find your work before we get into that. Um, yeah. Tell folks where they can find your work or maybe more about this project or whatever you got coming down the pipeline. Definitely Sean. Yeah. I would say uh, on Instagram, James Alofs is my handle. And then also TikTok, uh, it's James dot Alofs. Um, and, uh, yeah, some some little girl from Myanmar. I think she's from like Myanmar. She's like twelve years old. She has my handle on TikTok, and oh, I tried no. messaging her. I'm like, "What's going on, lady?" Like, she won't yeah. respond to my messages. But anyways, that that happens, right? But yeah, it's James Alos on TikTok and Instagram. So that's that's the best place <laughs> to stay connected. You had to have the dot in there, eh? Yeah. I, well, I yeah. just I just gave up my Twitter account. I'm, yeah, you're you're speaking of other social media accounts, and I'm all ears because at this point I'm not, I'm not so happy. I like Instagram, but I'm just not so happy with all things censorship right now. So I'm I'm searching. So that said, I gave up the the Twitter at Sean Slade, but uh, you know what? I don't need it. It's okay. <laughs> Was that done for political reasons or? No, I just uh, you know it just I didn't I didn't like Twitter. I found it a very toxic environment. Like I don't know. I used to use it for research, sharing research, but then it started to become as of late this kind of armchair political thing for me where uh you, you feel like you've got the ear of someone but meanwhile you're just tweeting to the to the nothingness of it all right and with the 400 500 people that i had on there it's it's just uh i'm like you know what it's time to uh focus switch focus and i've actually put it into something that allows me to communicate with researchers better so i'm i'm, I'm happy i'm happy with the with the with the split <laughs> nice yeah nice just lightening the load in the backpack that's how i feel it's just like a a, a trip you're thinking do i really need this anymore it's like nope trying to keep <laughs> the cybersecurity clean. But uh, but anyways, okay, well, that's that's great. And uh, yeah, I do wish you all the best there in, in LA um, on, on this project. Definitely keep me informed on, on what's going on and love to get you back. But um, yeah, before I let you go, uh, let me know, please, or tell us all what your wildest dream is for the earth as you sit here today.
wildest dream, I would say that um, that we just get to a point where it's it's back to a symbiotic relationship where you know humans give as much as we take because right now we're taking so much more than we give. Um, you know, on all fronts. And I think we have, we definitely have the technology. It's not a money or a technology thing. It's more of a uh, human, you know, willpower. There is, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, ignorance and apathy and greed. Mm. Um, so I think we're probably going to have to go through a big whack of extreme chaos due to climate change, uh, as well as biodiversity loss. That's probably going to end up with human civilization getting shaken up quite mightily, but I think we're eventually going to get back to, back to that stage. That, that's just my hope, man, to get back to a symbiotic relationship with uh, mother earth. Right on. I love that. And uh, I love how you mentioned it. it comes down to the willpower. I think um, we sometimes get distracted, I think in, in modern civilization and as you know, industrialization spans across the earth, no matter where it is. I find that uh, like you had said earlier, there's always that call to the wild, right? And I think we get distracted and I think our willpower, if we were, you know, sitting quiet in nature, we had access to nature, you know, we're rewilding in whatever way we can. I think that we'll have enough uh, clear headspace and we'll make the right choice to choose, you know, that symbiotic relationship with nature. So right on, I appreciate you saying that. Absolutely. Indeed. Absolutely. Well, man, yeah, this has been a lot of fun. We're here at the hour mark right now, so uh, I'll let you go. But uh, yeah, thanks again for being here. I appreciate it. No problem. And thank you, Sean, for all the amazing work you do, man. Keep keep rewilding yep. and sharing your message, man. I, I love it. And and we need your voice uh, on the planet right oh, thank now. You. So. Thank you. I'm doing my best to put it out there. And yeah, everybody, please, if you, if you follow the show on Instagram, check out James. Uh, I'll link everything in the show notes so that we have that. And as always, stay wild. Thank you for listening to the rewild my bio podcast please subscribe to the show and leave a five-star rating if you have enjoyed this episode i have so much gratitude for all of you who continue to share this show with your friends it really does mean so much to me if you want more content from rewild my bio then please check out rewildmybio.com to find previous episodes and sign up for the newsletter in the newsletter i share blogs i have written and reflections from my current health promotion research please follow along on instagram and telegram with the handle at rewild my bio and on Twitter, at Sean Slade. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, stay wild.